0: Okay, there we go. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at the last three verses of Hebrews chapter 4. It's a passage that I've been meditating on and thinking on for the past few months. And I'll be honest with you, it was very frustrating for me preparing for this morning because I wanted to, to really do justice to all three verses. I would need like three or four lessons. So I haven't been able to do that. So we're going to cover some things in detail, other things we just don't have the time to. And what I really wanted to focus on was verse 16. And so when I started studying this, I was going to just touch on verse 14, touch on verse 15, and then really hit it hard on verse 16. But as I was studying it, I just couldn't. So we're going to look at all three verses. And I pray and have been praying that God would work in our hearts, that we would understand and be overwhelmed by the grace that God gives us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We'll read, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with uh, confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I want us to look at these verses and see what God has for us. And I want you to notice, notice in verse 14, as we look at the first of these verses, notice, what what are we told to do here? We're told to do something here, and he tells us, right? Let us hold fast our confession. So that's what we're commanded, or that's what we're told to do. It's not an imperative, but we are told to do this. Let us hold fast our confession. And why? Because we have this great high priest. Now, I want you to know, look at the verb. It says, we have a great high priest. It doesn't say, we will have, we will attain, or we did have. No, we have now, at this very moment, this great high priest. And we will have him permanently. This is critical to understand, because that means for you and for me today that we now have all the blessings of the new covenant. Because of this great high priest. We're the only ones that can make that declaration. People in this world cannot. Because of this great high priest. And so because then we have this great high priest, we should be stirred to hold fast to our confession. To our faith. Now, this title, great high priest, helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And there are no high priests today, so that sort of makes it a little bit difficult for a lot of people to understand high priest. But God planned, think about this, God planned centuries of history with Israel, the entire Old Testament, so that we would have a context to understand the high priesthood. Think about that. It means that this is really significant, this is really important. He gave us the entire Old Testament to understand high priesthood, so that when Jesus came as our our high priest we would understand that and be overwhelmed by that so when you think of Jesus Christ as the high priest don't let it in one ear and not the other this is critical the entire Old Testament one of the things about the entire Old Testament is to help us understand the whole high priesthood but sadly today because people don't understand it they've transferred this phrase into something that's a little bit more familiar uh, like, for example, I know some people translated this to defense attorney. But this is wrong. Because a high priest is not a defense attorney. Okay, that's not, I mean, Jesus does that, but that's not what high priesthood means. To make this type of modern uh, analogy is to belittle what Jesus Christ did and who he is. We don't have the time to discuss the details of being a high priest. But I want to make a few brief observations and and the writer of Hebrews does that in verses 1-3 through of chapter 5. It gives us a little glimpse of uh, the, the, the high priesthood. I wish we had time where we could spend several lessons on the importance of the high priesthood. But verse 1 says that the high priests came from among men and they were appointed on behalf of the people to offer gifts and sacrifices to God. That's what they did. We see that in verse 1. So what this tells us then is that there's a holy God, and there is sin, and this sin has created a barrier between people and God. So God had to make a provision, if you will, so that man could be reconciled with God. And so what did he do? He ordained in the Old Testament human priests, right? The priesthood, the ironic priesthood. And there would be the shedding of blood, it's kind of like a an animal substitute, that they would be sacrificed and it would be through that sacrifice where God um, um, God would overlook, if you will, the sin of man. And so we have this sacrificial system through the priesthood that God established in the Old Testament because of man's sin. That's what we see there in verse 1. But notice, built into this priestly system, there were some inadequacies. Because in verse 3, he says, And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. He's talking about the priest. The priest himself had to first offer sacrifices for his own sin before he could offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. So note, there's an inadequacy there, right? As far as the priesthood is concerned. And he had to do this every year, which means that the priest's presence with God is very temporary and very short. He did not go into the Holy of Holies and just sit there and stay there. In fact, there was no place to sit in the Holy of Holies because the priest could not not stay there, right? So we see inadequacies. It also meant that because he was a man that this priest would one day die and he'd be replaced by another person. So we see the inadequacy of the priesthood, the the human priesthood of man in the Old Testament, right? That's what he tells us in verses 1 through 3. Now, the scriptures are replete with references to how man and God have been separated, right? Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, we're dead and trespasses and sins. Romans chapter 3 just tells us how we're separated, and on and on and on it, go, and it goes. And we have to understand that it's critical to understand that separation if we're going to understand the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Because apart from the priesthood of Jesus Christ, you and I are utterly hopeless. There is nothing that we can do, Right? utterly hopeless. There is sin. We're separated from God. There's nothing that can happen. So God, what does God do? God sends his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our great high priest. And this son who came lives a perfect life without sin. He dies to bear our sins. He's, he's risen from the dead to vindicate his power over death. This Offer, uh, this offering is permanent and thus it replaces that which was inadequate, that we saw in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5. So, what Jesus Christ did, he replaced all that went on in the Old Testament. Okay, all the, again, just read through the Old Testament, especially the law, and see the responsibility of the priest and the, and the high priest. It's overwhelming. I don't know how they could even keep all that in mind. But when Christ came and he became our great high priest, all of that is removed we don't have the priesthood today as they did in the old testament because it's replaced by the perfect high priest jesus christ does that make sense it's important it's important we understand the hopelessness that we had it's important to understand that the high priesthood of the old testament was inadequate i mean even the writer of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot what well, take away sin right so all of that was just temporary That was just temporary. When they offered those sacrifices, God didn't just remove the sins completely. Uh, In Romans chapter 3, it says he overlooked those sins temporarily. Why? Because all of it pointed to the great high priest when he came and he offered the perfect sacrifice for all time. And it is a permanent sacrifice. And it covers all sins. Past, present, and yes, even future. In fact... In uh, John chapter 2, it tells us, in the Greek, it tells us that we have been permanently forgiven in verse 12. Permanently forgiven because of the great high priest. That's what makes this so incredibly off, uh, awesome. And thus, only Jesus Christ could bring us to God. Only Jesus can save us from the separation that we once had. So there's only two, two options. It's either Jesus Christ or it's alienation. There's nothing in between. John fourteen six. what did Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He doesn't say, I'm one of the ways. I am the way. So there's no other way. So you either have alienation, or you have Jesus, the great high priest. That's critical to understand. It's important. And there's, there's a massive danger in all of this for us. Because we hear it so often that it doesn't move us. We're not stunned by it. It doesn't grip our hearts the way it should. We become casual about it and we take it for granted. And I think that it has hurt the church to take these things for granted. When we think of Jesus Christ as the great high priest, our hearts should be leaping at that thought. If we're not moved by that, then I would say, search your heart and cry out to God. Oh God, stir my heart to be overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus Christ came to be my great high priest so that I now am related to you. All sin, gone and removed. I'm no longer condemned because of this great high priest. I now have free, unlimited access to the throne of grace. I don't have to pay for it. Everything else that, you know, they say unlimited access. You have to pay for unlimited access. Not with God. Because of our great high priest. And I think it's a danger that we hear it so often. And, and it's a good thing we hear it often. Especially in a church like this where we preach the word. That's a good thing. But please don't ever let it become casual. Casual. No big deal. I've heard it a thousand times. Pray that each time you hear it, your heart leaps. Pray that each time you hear it, you can shout, Amen! Because it's awesome news. Don't ever get bored by it. Don't ever let it in one ear, not the other. Don't let it be casual. I believe God hates that. I know for me, in my job, I see people die almost every day. And people ask me, do you ever get used to it? And I say, are you kidding me? How do you get used to this? And what really hits hard for me, I even tell my wife this, the hardest thing for me is that the majority of people I see die, I'll never see again because they go to hell. My great high priest has protected me from that. I know that when I die, my life doesn't end. My life begins. Right? So that excites me. That's why I say, please, don't ever get used to this. But let it grab hold of your heart. Exactly. And I think it's one of the greatest sins in the church today, and we don't even acknowledge it because we don't even realize it. I'm going to talk more about it later. It's, it's. We think that profanity is simply words, but for, profanity actually is. More than just that, when we profane, what we're doing is we're taking the great sovereign God, and just making him like anything else. That's what God hates when we take this name. You know, when people say, oh, God. I'm sorry, that still irritates me like nothing. Because what have we done? We've taken this sovereign God, the creator of the universe, the holy, infinite God, and we brought him down to our level of it's no Basically, what you've done is you slapped God in the face and said, no big deal. And God hates that. And you're right. That's what we do when we hear it so often and it doesn't move us. High priest. When in reality, awesome. Great high priest. Yes. Should cause us to shout and sing. So you're right. We do profane God and God hates it. God hates it. But I want you to look at verse 14, because in verse 14, this great high priest is described in three ways, and I think it's very critical. And we see that the first one is that he is the great high priest. And I want you to circle that word great, because in the Greek, it's emphatic. Now, I want you to see something as well. Jesus Christ is great, not because he's high priest. He's great because of who he is. The priesthood doesn't make him great. He makes the priesthood great because of who he is, right? Right? And so because he is God, he excels over all. He passed through the heavens, we read, into the very presence of God. Right? So he's immediately superior to all the priesthood that, uh, the, the, that was represented by Aaron in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is awesome in greatness, and there's no other that can match it. So he's superior all other priests that ever lived or existed therefore all those other priests and priesthood is done with okay it's done with now i'm not saying we shouldn't study it i think we should study it even more to understand what the priesthood stood for and understand that jesus christ fulfilled it all so we would appreciate it and be overwhelmed by it even more you think about all the sacrifices they have to offer just try reading Just through the book of Numbers and through the book of Deuteronomy as he repeats it. And try to number all of those sacrifices. Every time I read it, I stand like, wow. Can you imagine if we had to do that every day today? But Christ fulfilled it all. Praise God, I don't have to worry about offering goats, sheep, all kinds of wheat flour and everything. I mean, there's so many. And yet, Jesus Christ in one sacrifice paid it all. What amazing grace that is. So he's the final priest between man and God because he's never going to die. He's never going to die. In chapter 7, verse 16 of Hebrews it says his, he, his priesthood is by an indestructible life. Think about that word. Indestructible life. Christ cannot be destroyed. Therefore, his priesthood is permanent. The great high priest. He's alive, he's eternal, and our confidence rests in him. And by the way, that word for great in the Greek is mega. So he's our mega high priest. That's what I like to say. Great, mega. The word mega in the Greek means it's uh, immeasurable. So if you want to measure the greatness of God, you can't. It's infinite. So he is the immeasurably great, the mega high priest. Secondly, this great high priest is unique because he passed through the heavens. And the analogy here is with the Jewish high priest on the day of atonement. Remember what he did? He had to pass through and go into the Holy of Holies. But it's interesting there in the Holy of Holies that they would have a rope tied to the ankle of the priest. And there was little bells at the bottom of his robe so that when he goes in, they hear the bells. If they stop hearing the bells, if he doesn't come out, he did something wrong. And so they have to pull them out. Because no one could go into the Holy of Holies. Think about that. They had to use all kinds of care. But our great high priest took care of all of that. So we now don't have to wear bells. Don't have to wear ropes. We're invited into the very presence of God and to pray and spend time with Him. And uh, they were limited in how much time they could stay. One day a year, just for a little short time. We could live at the throne of grace, day after day after day after day. Yes. I often think of the great high priest or the priest, Old Testament priest, going into the Holy Holy. And I think they replaced the curtain. And it just boggles my mind. Yeah, after after Christ died, the curtain. And and by the way, that curtain was about uh, what was it like? Six to twelve inches thick. So it's yeah. not kind of like some guy just. But it rip. was ninety feet tall. Yeah, and so it ripped. But they replaced it because they were so caught up in their religion that they, you know, they had no idea what Jesus Christ did, and that's the problem. And, right. just, and just, just, just think—it always humors me because it was ripped from the top to down. The bottom. And he wasn't recorded, that was ripped that way. Only the priest. Oh, yeah. They saw it. They knew it. The priests had to come out and tell the people. Yeah. it was a, yeah. So God had to tell the priest, go tell the people. Mm-hmm. They missed it. But, that, but then again, see, that adds to the fact that God in His grace opened our eyes so we could see that. The very ones who should have known better because they had the Old they knew the Old Testament, they should have known that and they missed it. Right. And the reason why they missed it is because the God of this world blinds their eyes, Second Corinthians 4, so they don't understand. So the fact that we're here today and we could talk about this and rejoice, praise God for that because he opened your eyes. If he didn't open your eyes, we'd be just like those Pharisees, just like those priests. We'd be thinking, oh, no, let's sew this back up and put it together. Yeah. 90 feet, can we take 90 feet. Yeah. take this room and set it up on its Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, the it from the top to the bottom was the new electronic knife. Now it's, it is amazing. But that's what, the priest, that's what the priest had to do. They had to go in once a year. But again, remember, the writer of Hebrews says that this was just a shadow of the reality. Our great high priest didn't go into the Holy of Holies there at the temple back then. He went through the heavens and went into the very Holy of Holies where God dwells. And that's where he remains. He stays there. That's where he is. No bells, no whistles, no ropes, right? been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. <clears throat> he sits at the right hand of God. In fact, in uh, Hebrews 7.26, it says that he's gone through and is exalted above the heavens. So he went into the true Holy of Holies, exalted over all. And so his ascension, when Christ rose from the dead, and we talk about his resurrection, which is very important, but please don't forget, his ascension is critical. Resurrection is critical, but so is his ascension, because the ascension of Jesus Christ is God's visible act of his vindication, his exaltation, his glorification. God accepted it. God accepted it. If Christ did not ascend... Then it wasn't accepted. We'd all be in trouble. Right, exactly. Exactly. He is seated. That's why the Holy of Holies on earth didn't have a seat, because their work was never done. Their work was never done. That's the reason why, um, if you remember the Levites and the priests, the priesthood, they didn't have uh, a, a whole tribal area, right? they were supported by the people because their work was never done. So they, had to, they had to have provisions, and so the people had to give to support them because their work was never done. The work of Christ is done complete. There's nothing to be added, nothing further to be done. And so this great high priest is unique because he passed through the heavens. The fight is over. He has won the victory. Sadly, the high priests and throughout Jewish history, they had to pass through the veil Every year. Every year. But not so with Christ. Third, and I've mentioned this already, is that the, the, the next great thing about the high priest, this this great high priest, is that he is Jesus the Son of God. Jesus the Son of God. And the name Jesus here in the Greek is emphatic. It's brought forward. So he wants to emphasize that this is no ordinary man. This is Jesus, unique. It's emphatic. He's very God. So he's the divine son. He is is the one who is in that thrice holy God. When they say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, Christ is there. He's involved in this. And so this makes his sacrifice of infinite worth. And we should be overwhelmed by it. Because when he went into the holy of holies, yes, he brought blood, but it was holy blood, his blood. It wasn't the blood of animals. And it wasn't even the blood of humans. It was his holy blood that he brought to the heavenly holy of holies. And so because of that, our debt has been paid permanently. And so he is majestic in power. He's majestic in glory. He is the son of God who is human and divine. That's what makes him the unique great high priest. And of course, this is the basis for which we are to hold fast our faith, our confession. Right? Right? It's because of this great high priest. In fact, one scholar says when he talks about holding fast this confession, what is this confession? He says, it is the belief that is both inwardly entertained by the heart and outwardly professed before man. I agree. That's that's our profession. That's our confession. That's our faith. It's inwardly it overwhelms us. It grabs hold of our hearts. But outwardly it is expressed by the way we live and how we talk with people. And we don't hold back. Why? Because we have a great high priest. And we have to remember, and I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning, but uh, by way of background, the reason why the writer is writing this letter is because the Hebrew Christians at this time were under severe persecution. And so many of the Hebrew Christians were beginning to compromise and beginning to hide their faith because they didn't want to endure all of that persecution. And so they were beginning to sort of cave in, beginning to hide. And the writer of Hebrews here is telling them, no, we have a great high priest. There's no reason for us to hide our faith. In other words, if we understand who this one is, this great high priest, then we would never give up. We would not compromise. Rather rather than compromise, we would be proud. We would declare boldly. We would let people know. Yes, we do believe in Jesus Christ. I do trust in him. See, the confession of the faith that we possess is a treasure beyond price. Why would we want to hide it? Why would we want to compromise it? Knowing who the great high priest is that has saved us. And that's why he writes this letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews. This confession, this faith, is, makes life worth living. And throughout the centuries, we know of thousands and thousands of men and women who are prepared to die for this confession. And many did. We have many martyrs who refused to compromise. And even today, how many missionaries that we know who are suffering great persecution for the cause of Jesus Christ because of this great high priest? That's why we in this country should never back down, never be afraid. It's one of the things I do enjoy about my job. There's difficulties, but also good things, because I can go in and talk to people about Jesus Christ, and that's what I do, even if they're not believers. I tell them I'm a chaplain. I talk to people about Jesus. you believe in Jesus? No. Well, let me tell you about them. And the nice thing is, is they can't move. <laughs> they can't. They're stuck in bed. So I have the option, I take out my phone, and I read a passage, and I tell them, Jesus Christ died for our sins. You know, if you die in your sin, you go to hell. Don't you want to be with him, have life? It's only through Jesus Christ. I have that privilege and that opportunity, even when they don't want to hear it. But every now and then, you get a tough one. Really sad. I remember one time going into a facility and talking to this gentleman. He said, you're what? You're a Christian? And he, said, he his face contorted. Get out of here. I don't ever want to Hardened hearts. Wow. But by and large, a lot of them are dying and they're scared. Man, you tell them about Jesus Christ and it's like... Uh. Now, a lot of them don't even understand what it means to trust because they think that they're good enough. Oh, I've been a good person all my life, and you try to tell them it doesn't cut it. But it is it, it is a privilege to tell them about Jesus Christ. Some have challenged. Say, I don't, how can you believe that stuff? Say Because it's true. That's why I believe it. So... Uh, stand for it. Don't cave in. There's nothing to be afraid of. We have this great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes for us every moment of every day. We don't have to back down. Don't be robbed of your faith. Advertise it. Hold it fast. Hold it firm. So if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, giving up is not an option because we have this great high priest. Let's look at verse 15. We've got to move on. I just realized I haven't even left verse uh, 14 yet. In verse 15, we learn that Jesus, though he was tempted, never gave in. And so, therefore, he is sympathetic. Right? Now, just in case, the reason why he writes this is because, just just in case that uh, some may question that, because he's so great and because he has never sinned, he can't relate to us. We fall in sin. He doesn't know what that's like. And so the writer of Hebrews gives an answer to this, and there's three parts of this. First of all, he tells us that he was tempted in all kinds of ways, just as we are. Jesus Christ was tempted? Understand, being tempted is not a sin. Falling for temptation is, right? That's important. So Jesus Christ's presence in heaven and his identity as the Son of God does not affect him from understanding what we go through. He knows and understands and feels what we go through. He's been tempted in every way that you can imagine. But he's never sinned. And so we have to understand that though Jesus Christ did not sin, you cannot infer from that, and people have. You cannot infer from that that he cannot relate. I remember having students when I was teaching at one time, making that statement. Jesus can't possibly understand and know what it's like because he never sinned. That's the argument, which is a foolish argument personally. The reality is the exact opposite. The sinless one, the one who did not sin, experienced a greater force of temptation than we do. So he's aware of our needs because he has experienced to the full the pressures and testings of life in this godless world. So he was tempted in all things as we are. Second, he never gave in and sinned. He never sinned. That's also important. He, didn't, he descended to our level, but he never descended to sin. That makes sense, right? We all struggle. We all have weaknesses. We all stumble and fall. I know I do. But not Jesus Christ. John Calvin says, these infirmities are weaknesses. These infirmities Christ of his own uh, accord undertook, and he willingly contended with them, not only that he might attain a victory over them for us, but also that we may feel assured that he is present with us whenever we're tried by them. I love that statement. He took the full pressure, but never sinned. And then third, and this is most critical, he is therefore sympathetic with us in our weaknesses. See, the strength to make our confession comes from one who would made the confession before Pilate. He knew what it was like to be condemned for his confession. So he can relate to us. He can relate to us. Since he endured every temptation successfully, he he knows what we experience and he can sympathize. By the way, the word uh, sympathize means to feel and to suffer. It's to understand a person from inside. That's what that word sympathize here means. So Jesus Christ knows inside what it is that we go through every day of our lives. That's a great high priest. You're never alone. No matter how difficult it is, Christ feels it. He knows it because he lived it. We can never go to the Lord and say, you don't know what it's like. Christ says, well, believe me, I know what it's like. So because of his earthly life and what he experienced, he um, understands our human experience. He is fully acquainted with human nature. In fact, the scriptures say that he has touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. So there's no human experience that is foreign to Jesus, excuse me, to Jesus Christ, because he endured it. Now remember, (coughs) excuse me, temptation falls into three uh, categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. And Christ was tempted in all of those areas, and not just once, but when you read through the Gospels, you read again and again and again. We know that he was tempted in the desert, sure, but that's not the only time. Jesus had to cope with thirst, weariness, desertion when he was left alone, disappointments, and on and on and on. He was tempted in all ways as we are on a regular basis. So nothing that we go through is foreign to him. In fact, even on the cross, he was tempted. Remember the religious leaders? If he's the son of God, let him come down. Could Jesus come down off that cross? Yeah. Think about the suffering that he was going through, and they're tempting him to come down. You want to talk about temptation? But he didn't. He didn't. He suffered it all. So he endured the full range of temptation, but without sin. Therefore, he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our pain. He can sympathize with our dying. He he experienced it all. He tasted the full power of Satan's tempting power. Now, many years ago, C.S. Lewis imagined someone making this objection. He said, if, this objector. He said, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know that what temptation is like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. So he's raising this objection. And then C.S. Lewis answers this objection. Here's what he said. Here's how he answered. He said, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Basically, what he is saying is this. Let's use our imagination. Let's say there's this big, massive pit. We'll call it temptation pit. It's filled with every kind of temptation. Big, deep pit filled with all of this temptation. And there's three people standing next to this temptation pit. And out of this temptation pit is a rope around a person. We'll call him person A. And it's pulling on person A to come into this temptation pit. 20 pounds of pressure, and he's resisting. 30 pounds of pressure, and he's resisting. 35 pounds, he gives in and goes into the temptation pit. Person B, same thing. He's got this rope around him. Temptation is pulling him in. And he's fighting this temptation with all that he's got. 30, 35 pounds. You see the sweat breaking, and he's fighting and fighting. And they keep pulling and pulling. 45, 50, 60 pounds, and he gives in. Boom. Goes into the pit. Person C, rope around him, same thing. Just pulling on 35, 40 pounds. 50, 60, 70 pounds, and he's fighting and fighting. 80, 95 pounds. The sweat pouring on him, he's fighting. 100 pounds, the rope breaks, and he doesn't go in. Of those three, who experienced the greatest temptation? See. Though he didn't go in, he felt the greatest force. That's Jesus Christ. We give in, he didn't. So when we talk about temptation, and and does Christ understand? Oh yeah. He understands far better than we do, even though we're the ones that go through it now. Because he never gave in, he experienced The full force of the demonic world's temptation and never gave in. So yeah, he does relate. I agree with C.S. Lewis. He's the ultimate realist. He knows temptation. He knows the force of temptation. So when we face those times of difficulty, please understand we have this great high priest who knows exactly what you're going through because he went through it himself. He feels it on the inside on our behalf. We'll never be able to fathom the depth of the temptations he endured, because he faced the full force. Although we can't relate, I rejoice in the fact that he can relate to my weakness. That gives me great hope. He does relate to all of my weaknesses, to everything I stumble and fall in. In fact. He can relate to my weaknesses and he can relate to your weaknesses better than we can to our own weaknesses. Because he's endured it all perfectly. In fact, he tasted it to the point of death. Not one person here can say that. Not one person here has tasted temptation to the point of death. We're all here. Jesus did. And he's alive. So he's our sympathetic great high priest. He understands what we go through. And if we have such a great high priest who did conquer, but at the same time is deeply sympathetic, why would we not hold fast our confession? Why would we not want to go and be with him? And that's the argument of this writer Hebrews. And then in verse 16, he says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So verse 16 gives us the answer to our dilemma of weakness. Now note the very first word, therefore. What does that tell us? Therefore, therefore. What is therefore? There? It points us back to the first two, uh, the verse 14 and 15. Therefore, because we have such an incredible high priest, therefore, because we have this mega high priest, because that is the reality, because that is the case, then we should boldly or confidently, on a regular basis, continually come to the throne of grace. Why? The reason why is because when Jesus Christ is your great high priest, the throne of God is a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment. And what you find at that throne is mercy to help. Not condemnation, not judgment. So when we come to that throne of grace, because of our great high priest, expect mercy and grace to help. Not, oh God, please don't judge me. No, because of our great high priest, there is no longer any judgment. There may be discipline, but there's a difference between discipline and judgment, right? What's the difference between discipline and judgment? True, heaven and hell. Discipline is for correction. It's out of love, right? When we discipline our children, I don't, you know, when I discipline my children, I didn't beat the tar. I don't say, you go to hell. No, no, I didn't do that. I disciplined them and hugged them and let them know why I did that because I love them. I want to correct them. That's what God does with us. But what is judgment? Judgment is because of, uh, judgment is punishment because of rebellion. You and I will never, ever, ever, ever for all eternity, never, ever taste one iota of God's judgment, because all of it was paid by the great high priest so we have no reason to fear we come to the throne of grace fully confident that because our great high priest is there we have grace and mercy grace and mercy grace and mercy no judgment no fear and that's what this writer is trying to get across. That's a throne. <coughs> excuse me, a throne of grace is not a throne to be shunned. It's not a throne that we oh no hide, but it's a throne that we should be running to. You kidding me? It's a throne that we should be grabbing onto, not letting go. The throne of grace. And by the way, throne of grace. This is the only place in the in the scripture where we read um, that phrase. So having this high priest gives us confidence. He is in the most advantageous position. Why? Because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Doesn't get closer and better than that. So there's no reason to fear. And so the writer exhorts his readers to approach God boldly without any fear of rejection. In view of what our great high priest has done, there's no barrier for us to approach God. <clears throat> Even when we stumble. See, at times we, we stumble. We sit and we've done something we know we shouldn't have done. And at times we feel like, oh, God cannot accept me. I can't pray. And I've heard people say that. You don't know what I've done. I said, I don't need to know what I've done, what you've done. I know what Jesus Christ did. And <laughs> what Jesus Christ did opens the door for you. Regardless of what you've done, He opens the door for you to come confidently. Confidently. <coughs> you confess and you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he forgives. Regardless of what we've done. And Christ knows. He understands. So don't stay away. Draw close with great confidence, knowing he hears. So we should never be tentative because we have this great high priest in whom we can be confident. <clears throat> now it's interesting that he uses the word Throne. Too often we let this word in and out and we don't really think about it, but we have to understand it in the terms of when this letter was written back in the first century. And the fact that it is a throne means that this is where I want to spend most of my time. And of course, I, I can't. There's so much there. But I just want to mention a couple of things about throne and approaching this throne. Because I believe it is critical for us to understand that. Since it is a throne, therefore, it is to be approached with lowly reverence. Back then, you never approach a king arrogantly because you would be struck dead immediately. I mean, you know, the king could look at you and say, oh, really? And that's it. They could behead you immediately. You come in with lowly reverence. Humility, right? That's how we approach God, in humility. Our God is the great king who rules over all. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, it's hard for me to say that because I have so many, but one of my favorite is Psalm 103, verse 19, where it says that God has established His throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. You don't come arrogantly before such a great king. So it has to be that lowly reverence. There's no room for pride, conceit, and arrogance when we come to God, Charles Spurgeon said, and lo- I love when he makes these statements. He says, I'm afraid we do not bow as we should before the eternal majesty. Let us ask the Spirit of God to put us in a right frame that every one of our prayers may be a reverential approach to the infinite majesty above. In other words, understand who, are, who we are approaching. You know, we say, well, he's my friend. No, he's beyond that. <laughs> yes, he's a friend, but he's far greater than me. He is the holy, holy, holy God who is surrounded by countless millions of angels who are constantly bowing their faces and shielding their eyes because His glory is so majestic. Who are we to approach that throne with arrogance and pride? The Spurgeon says, let's pray that the Holy Spirit will put the right attitude in our hearts that when we come before Him, we come with humility, not with arrogance. God, look at me. Remember the parable Jesus talked about, the two guys that came into the temple, the, uh, the, the Pharisee? Oh, God, look at me. I'm this great guy. You're lucky you have me. I tithe, all of this, and I'm not like this lowly guy here. And the other guy wouldn't even pick up his eyes, beating his breast. Oh, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And what did Jesus say? He went out, forgiven and justified. Humility, that's how we approach God. Second, because it's a throne, we approach this throne with complete submission. Complete submission. We don't approach this throne as though we're going to tell the king what to do, as if he doesn't know what's going on and what needs to be done. Sometimes that's what our prayer is. God, my boss just said this and that, and I don't know what to do, and I'm gonna do this and that, and Lord will just bless when I do these things. No, as if God doesn't know what your boss just did, He knows everything. So you come in complete submission. We come with the phrase in our minds, not my will, but your will be done. And it's easy to voice that. Boy, it's a lot harder to feel that, though, isn't it? Because we may say, "God, not my will, but your will," and, my, and our hearts are saying, oh, "God, do this, please and It's like we wrestle with God. But here is the beauty: when we say, and we truly, deep in our hearts, feel it, not my will, but yours be done. The beauty of it is that when we do pray for something and God does not give it to us, we can actually rejoice and say thank you. Because see, we don't know what God knows. There have been many times I look back in my own life that I prayed for things that God didn't bring to pass. Then I look back and realize, boy, am I glad he denied that. I'd be in a lot of trouble if he gave me what I wanted back then. Because we don't know how things work out and, and what to pray for. But because of our great high priest, he knows what's best. And so when we submit to him and say, God, not my will but yours be done, if something does not get answered the way we expect it, we can still say, God, thank you. Because I know you've given me what's best, even if I don't understand it. That's what it means to come before the throne. Gracious God, not my will, but your will be done. And then third, about this throne. When we come to this throne, we come with deepest sincerity. Deepest sincerity. God hates when we come to him with words that have no heart. You ever see people pray, and they're just praying, but their mind is elsewhere, and they're thinking about other things, but words are just flowing from the. That's an insult to God. You ever talk to somebody, and you, you're talking to them, but their mind is elsewhere? Don't you feel like, really? That's what you think of me? And many times, that's how we pray to God. And God hates that. He hates that insincerity. Again, Spurgeon said, let us beware of playing at praying. It is insolence towards God. I love that statement. Beware. Don't play at prayer. Be serious. Deep sincerity before God. And fourth and finally, there's more, but this is the last that I I, want to give. Uh, Because it is a throne of grace, we can come with great confidence. We need to have that trust, that faith, knowing God does hear. He does hear. We come with great confidence because of our great high priest. Note the phrase, in order that... So that, depending on your translation. Why? So that we may uh, receive grace and mercy. And believe it, this is what we need more than anything, right? We need his grace and mercy. We need his grace and mercy more than we need money and prestige and power and houses and cars and even health. We need grace and mercy. So those who come to the throne of grace relying on our great high priest, we are certain that God hears us. And you can be beyond a shadow of a doubt knowing that God is going to pour out his grace and mercy upon you and upon that request. Be certain. Mercy speaks of God's relieving of man's miseries. That's his mercy. His grace is basically the favor of God which he gives that we don't deserve. And we receive both at that throne. So he freely pours out his grace and mercy. And notice what happens when we do that, to help in time of need. In other words, God's help is always well-timed. It's a well-timed help. That's how the Greek reads here. Okay, It, uh, it implies, the, the, the word grace implies help. That's what grace is for. So God's grace will help, but it helps at that perfect time when you need it. That's uh, the emphasis here. He stands ready to help. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, he makes that statement. And the only way that this can be true is if God is sovereign and sets the times and rules all of the situations and seasons of our lives. You, you either believe that or you don't, right? Your trust in God's sovereignty will determine your prayer life, whether you realize that or not. Your trust in God's sovereignty will determine your prayer life. Little trust means little prayer. Great trust, great confidence means great prayer. And so we have to trust Do we truly, genuinely believe that he is sovereign over every detail of our lives? Or are those just words that we pronounce to sound good, and to sound theological, and to sound Christian? It's a well-timed help. Think about it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, it states that God fixes all times by his own authority. It says, It is not for you to know times or ethics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then in Psalm uh, Psalm 31, verse 15, David, praying to to God, says, My times are in your hands. Think about that. My times are in your hands. So everything in our lives is at the control of God. So we can have confidence. We can have confidence in our prayer knowing that God will pour out his grace for a well-timed help. When that time is there where you desperately need the help, He kicks it in. That's what the phrase tells us here. And every one of us needs help. <laughs> I know I do. Right? We all have weaknesses, we have confusion, we have limitations, but not God. And this is why Jesus Christ as our, great, as our great high priest is stunning. He's awesome. The help we get at the throne of mercy is grace to help in time of need. Do you have any needs? Well, the answer is right here, right? The is right here. Now, please understand, the grace to help is not deserved help, right? It's not that God is going to give us help because we deserve it. We did something, and God is paying us back for it. Praise God He doesn't give us what we deserve. I thank Him every day. We don't deserve it, but we can have it because of our great high priest. And that's why we approach Him. But I want to clarify something very quickly here before we end. What this need and help is that's being talked about. If we look at the context of this letter, the people were struggling with persecution. They were struggling with compromise. They were struggling with caving in. See, it's very easy for Christians to hide their identity under persecution. It's also easy to compromise our confession when it comes to certain things that we want. And if we can hide our confession to get it, we'll do it and we we justify it. In other words, it's easier to rationalize sin at times, isn't it? It really is. We struggle with this. And those are the needs that we should be praying for more than anything. For example, how often do we pray that God will protect us from the love of money? Most people don't, because that's what they want. Yet, what is what do we learn in scripture about the love of money? the root of all kinds of evil. We should be praying that God will protect us against such things. See, the problem is that we don't see things as weaknesses because it is what we desire. Remember the rich young ruler? What was his problem? I've done all of these things. There's one thing you lack. He had a love of money. And that kept him out. See, we have needs that we're not aware of because there are things that we really want and we justify it. When in reality, we should be praying, God, protect me from the love of money. God, protect me from hoarding what you've given to me. Protect me from how I look at people and judge them. Protect me from this. Protect. Those are things we need to really be praying for because those are the things that matter more than money, possessions, even job. So be careful what we consider needs. So then, because we have this indescribably awesome mega- High Priest, we can do two things. We can hold fast to our confession and we can come confidently to the throne of grace and there find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our great High Priest. Lord, I pray that what we have seen today, what we have learned today, that your spirit would so penetrate our hearts, that we would be those who would hold fast to this confession, and we would not um, back down, but we would declare boldly. And Lord, that it would draw us closer to you so that uh, we would uh, continually come with great confidence to the throne of grace, that we would present to you our needs, the true needs, and that we would know and trust and have confidence in the fact that you will meet those needs according to your grace and mercy. So, Father, thank you for this rich passage. And we pray now for this next hour. Prepare our hearts, O oh God, that we may continue to worship you as we sing, as we pray, and, Lord, as we listen and hear. Again, I ask for your grace upon Bruce that you would speak clearly, powerfully through him, that our hearts would be touched and moved. Come and do what only you can do, Lord. It's what we need more than anything to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen.